I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 125. I'm behind the times because it's already on season three, but I've been binging Yellowstone. It's like modern day Western-ish. You know, I've never seen Dynasty, but I kind of feel like this would be like Dynasty. It's a wealthy family in Montana that has like lots of land and people are trying to take their land. And it's Kevin Costner. I mean, yes, he's as old as a granddad, but hello, granddaddy. He is fucking sexy. But it's like family drama meets really pretty scenery meets lots of cowboys meets, I don't know, everything. It's really good. Okay. What's it on? I don't know what it comes on now. Because, you know. But, old Tiffany, she told me Peacock, which is a new app you can get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Season one and season two, it's free to see everything. Uh, Well, we're still watching Dexter. And it's going to take us forever to get through it. Because, one, your girl over here, tired as fuck. (laughs) Two, Colby starting to shut down. So, we're probably going to watch, like, two episodes in the next month. Yeah. We're like legit. We're just still on season three. Damn. Oh, I watched something on Netflix because I haven't been sleeping, y'all. But it's called Get Even. It's across the pond is where it's set. Mm. Yes. It's like Pretty Little Liars. It was also like a book stuff like Pretty Little Liars. But it's really good. I haven't watched this, but I've seen really good reviews on it, and it's called Love on the Spectrum on Netflix, and it's people who are on the spectrum dating and, like, going on blind dates or whatever. Oh, so it's like a, like a reality-type thing? Yeah, I think so. Oh. Yeah. I saw, like, one clip, and it was basically two people were sitting there, and they're younger, mm-hmm. and it was like, I could be your friend. I couldn't date you. But I can be your friend. You're nice, but I don't want to date you. Like, and it was like, yeah, I can agree with that. I can agree. And it's like, that's what, like, can you write a book? Because this is what I need. Right. Like, instead of ghosting and everything else. And so it was just like, when you can learn a lesson in like 10 seconds from Mm -hmm. Love on the Spectrum, you know? And I was like, yep, adding that to my list because holy shit. So, I haven't watched it, but again, it seems like it would be wholesome, and I'll probably cry. Well, now that we have all the shows to watch from your (laughs) list, uh, there's some other people that have got some shows to listen to. Ooh, look at that. I mean, I am just getting so good at these segues. You are. Uh, So, new Patreoners. Welcome, Amy M. from Arizona. Colleen C. from Illinois. Nelda H. from Texas. Do you think all the other states get jealous that we only do Texas? Well, if William Shatner did Illinois, right? We'll do that absolutely. <laughs> Daniel C from Connecticut, Vanessa S from Utah, and Monica H from California. <laughs> Thank y'all all so much for joining Patreon. Y'all have a fuck ton of bonus content and episodes and extra slices and bloopers and all the things to catch up on. So get to listening. And if anybody else wants to join them, head on over patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Also, while you're listening to this, 
I am now 35, so just know that I had a birthday and Carrie made me the most amazing strawberry cake. I'm saying this right now as a reminder to her that she is supposed to make me a strawberry cake. Adds ingredients to <laughs> grocery list. <laughs> just kidding, bitch. I already got you. Okay. No, I hadn't bought it yet. <laughs> this bitch wants like a like a fucking boxed strawberry cake. Like last year for her birthday, I was like, hey, you want me to like try something? Like put some like real strawberry? She's like, no. That'll ruin it. Nope. Just a boxed strawberry cake. Yes. I mean, as cheap and as easy. I'm here for it. Just like Donna. Ha ha ha. Wow. I don't know what that was. <laughs> okay. Picture it. 1991 in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. 40-year-old Catherine Dolan Heckle, who goes by Kathy, she gets up, does her morning routine. The kids are staying home because it's during the summer. She talks to the kids. Hey, what do y'all want to do for dinner? What's going on today? Yada, yada, yada. Leaves and goes to work. She works up until her lunch break. And then she was never seen again. What? So that morning, like I said, she had talked with her kids. Her kids had called her at work a couple of times. But then she didn't answer. And they were like, oh, she's already gone to lunch. And then the kids called back again when she would be back from lunch. And her coworkers were still like, oh, she's not here yet. You know, and her daughter's like, they're, they sounded kind of worried, but, I mean, her kids were young, you know, didn't really think anything of it. Just like, okay, I'll call back again. Well, by that evening, she wasn't home yet. And so her daughter calls her grandmother and says, hey, can you bring us some milk over? And her grandma's like, what? Why? And she's like, well, mom hadn't been home and we had, so we hadn't had dinner yet. Gosh. And her grandma's like, wait, what the what? What you mean? And yeah. so they like rush over there because nobody knows where their daughter is. Wow. When Kathy's parents got to her house, they immediately called her husband, John, to say, hey, Kathy never came home from work. Like, have you heard from her? What's going on? Well, John was away at a two-week training exercise because he was in the National Guard. Mm. And so he immediately asks his superiors, like, hey, can I go home like my wife is nobody knows where she is yeah and they're like yeah yeah yeah, go home the next day nobody's seen kathy and so her father reports her missing by the time john gets home she's been missing for 36 hours gosh when he gets home he's the one that tells the kids like look we can't find your mom we don't know what's going on you know I mean, whatever you say to your fucking children when their mother is missing. In the background, police are already doing their thing. They're interviewing coworkers. You know, they're trying to track her steps. Police interview her husband, John, and they find out they've been married for 18 years. How old is she? 40. Okay. Okay. So police find out she and John have been married for 18 years. They had a whirlwind of a romance, got married very quickly. It was a good marriage, but it had its problems, which, I mean, hello, who doesn't? But John was in the military, and the military was his priority. He would be gone for extended periods of time, doing training, and just when he was deployed places, because he was the National Guard. So think about, like, 
oh, a hurricane hits and they mobilize the National Guard to yeah. go help shit, you know? Yeah. So he could be gone for weeks at a time. And again, that's where he was when she went missing. So the police interview him and he says, yeah, you know, Kathy was acting a little odd when she dropped me off for the training. She acted like she didn't want me to leave. And she was like, like, why are you getting there this early? And he's like, I'm always the first one here. It's my job. Like, I have to do this, you know? And she was like, are you sure you have to go? You know, and he was like, yes. Like, you know, he's like, she's just acting kind of weird, but okay, whatever, you know, got to go. And so the police were like, okay, you know, making notes. But they they did a little investigating and their finances and all that. And there was no trail of him being able to do it because he was like five hours away from home. There was no money trail where he would have paid someone to make her disappear. You know, there was no connection between him and Kathy's disappearance. So police quickly eliminate him as a suspect. Before you said that she was acting weird, I thought, like, and not wanting him to go, I thought she might have wanted him to go. And I was like, mm, she found love on AOL. So she met up with someone, and this is going to be on Web of Lies and all of this stuff. But then if she's, like, not wanting him to go, that doesn't make my my whole story in my head mm-hmm. true. So thanks for ruining that storyline. <laughs> so police turn to her coworkers, and they find out that at the start of her lunch break, she left out of the parking lot in her car, and that's the last time anyone saw her. They said that, you know, the past couple of weeks, she'd been acting kind of strange. They said there was rumors of an affair. And so, you know, they just did some digging. They asked her mom, too, Kathy's mom, and she was like, yeah, you know, she's been acting kind of weird. And they're like, well, do you think she's having an affair? And she was like, I mean, could be. She was acting weird, you know. So the police asked John was Kathy having an affair? And he was like, I suspected it, but I had no proof. But it was nothing they ever talked about. He said that it was almost like when he went to leave for his training, that maybe that's what she was about to talk to him about, why she didn't want him to leave. Mm. So the police ask, again, the coworkers, you know, people who are her friends, and they find out that she had recently connected with a guy named Dennis Taylor, and he was an old friend who, again, they just reconnected. They were at the same place. He was, like, playing guitar in this band when they reconnected. Some say she was having an affair with him. I don't really know for sure that they were, but other than that, the biggest rumor about her alleged affair was with a guy named Lloyd Groves. Kathy and Lloyd both worked at, well, I've seen this place called two different names, the Hammer Mill Paper Company and International Paper Company. But anyway, they worked there together and they had like a company volleyball team that they played on together and just sometimes they worked late together. And so they developed an affair. Allegedly. Allegedly. So police bring in Dennis and... Everything he says checks out, like, they eliminate him very quickly as a suspect. Again, though, a suspect of what? We don't actually know because nobody knows where Kathy is. Nobody knows if she just picked up and left or if there was foul play involved. 
police called Lloyd to ask him some questions and he didn't answer. So they left a message and he like immediately like shows up to the station and be like, Hey, you know, you got questions. Like I'm here for answers. Like fucking the home Depot of questions. You got questions. We got answers. I was going to say like the cable guy, you rang. Did you ever watch that? Mm -hmm. Police asked the basics, you know, y'all work together. Y'all knew each other, blah, blah. And he's like, well, I have to tell you, we were having an affair. He kind of mentioned the affair was coming to an end. Kathy was wanting to end things because they were both married. They both had kids. It was just kind of not messy, but you know, that shit gets messy. But he didn't have much more to offer police. The next thing, police interviewed Lloyd's wife, whose name happens to be Kathy. Okay. So, I mean, he could never fuck up names, you know? Right. Well, they say, like, men and women who only call their significant other, like, pet names, never by their name, that it's usually so they don't fuck up names. Ooh. Lloyd's wife, Kathy, found out about Kathy Heckle's disappearance from Lloyd. She said that Lloyd had told her that Kathy was missing, the police had interviewed him, and that they thought he was a prime suspect. And he was like, I could be arrested. And he was like, that's why I was late for dinner, because the police were interviewing me. But that was really it. Like, they asked if she knew Kathy Heckle, and she was like, not really. You know, we met at like a Christmas party, but, you know, nothing like... I didn't, like, know her. Well, police put talking with Kathy, talking with Lloyd on the back burner because just two days after she disappeared, her car was found near the Lock Haven Hospital. When they got to the car, the car was parked in third gear with the emergency brake on, and the keys were missing, but there was nothing. There was no blood. There was no evidence of where she was they know that she didn't have any money or anything on her when she went missing and again they've been checking the financials and there was no money missing so all police have is they know that she was wearing a sleeveless maroon blue and yellow printed dress some flat shoes maybe tan a gold chain necklace with quarter carat diamond earrings her wedding ring with three small diamonds and a gold and diamond engagement ring with a one-carat diamond. But none of that was anywhere in her car. You know, it, the car was nothing. One one thing I forgot to mention about police's interview with Dennis was that one time when he was with Kathy, Kathy mentioned that she was being stalked by Lloyd. And she said, did you see that van over there? That was Lloyd. And so... Police had that information, and then some of the friends at work started saying, well, you know, she mentioned she thought she was being followed, probably by Lloyd, so she was going to end everything. So police start honing in on Lloyd. He had a fairly new van, only just like a couple of years old, and some people had been in his van, and they said that they saw this kind of red-brown stuff in the back of his van, Well, Lloyd said, oh, that was from a deer. But, uh... Oh, gosh. It's summer, so unless you hit it 
in your van? What you doing killing a deer right now? Right. And also, who throws a deer in the back of a fucking, like, minivan? Right. Well, guess what he does? He cuts that area of carpet out. And I mean, not just, like, the carpet, like, the padding and everything underneath it. Oh, shit. So, again, he had said deer blood before, but he told his wife that it was oil or tar. Again, what? Exactly. So police get to look in his van, and they find where it had been reupholstered there. But they found little traces of blood. So he didn't get it all. They found a box of twenty-five caliber ammunition, a hunting knife, a partially used roll of duct tape, two duffel bags, and... A twenty-five caliber pistol in his desk. Uh, it sounded like you're going to say, and a partridge in a pear tree. Yeah, basically, he had his version of a kill kit. For real. Police do, like, a typing screen on the blood, and it comes back type A. But again, it's 1991, no DNA, so all they had was the blood type. And they knew that Kathy's blood type was type A. Mm, dun, dun, dun. At this point, all of Lloyd's friends and colleagues are like, he's been acting weird since all this shit went down. One of the coworkers said, I saw them kind of arguing before lunch. And some said that they saw his van leaving right after her car left for lunch. And he was acting weird and like paranoid. And he would ask his coworkers, like, did police ask you about me? Did they ask you about me? You know, just weird. Just weird shit. It's even said that he tried to get coworkers to help him create an alibi. Wow. So, police also know that Lloyd had given his wife, Kathy, a note. And in that note, because he is such a planner... It was a list of things, like, of instructions for her to do in case anything happened to him. So, how to change the tire on the tractor, how to blah, blah, blah you know, just like a... Yeah. A how to manage things at home in case something happened to him. Like, oil change, you know, all that shit. Yeah. Then, at the end of July, he left his wife, Kathy, a note, and it said, I have to get away for a while. I'll be back tomorrow or Wednesday at the latest. I love you. Tell the kids I'm at work. And she didn't know where he went, what he was doing, but he told her that he thought Kathy Heckle had just, like, gone off to be with some of her many boyfriends, that she's not missing. She just, nothing's wrong with her. She's just off with one of her many, many boyfriends. Well, guess what happened then? They found her body. No. The case went cold. No. They had nothing. They had used scent tracking dogs to see if they could find her from where her car was parked. All this stuff. But they had nothing. Until? Until an investigator took over the case. And he was the 61st detective to have put hands on this case and try to solve it holy shit yes so now we're in like 2013 14 ish 
this young detective is like, I am going to fucking solve this. They run a DNA test on the blood that was found in Lloyd's van, and they used Kathy's parents to match the DNA, and it came back as a match. That was her DNA. Wow. So they're like, check. So they start going back and interviewing people. They ended up getting, like, the state attorney general's office involved because they were like, look, we don't have the resources. We need some help. So they bring in the big guns. They investigate, they investigate, and they investigate. And then 24 years after Kathy disappeared, they charged Lloyd Groves with her murder. It was another three years before they would go to trial. There was like all kinds of stuff like Lloyd had a heart attack that ended up having to have like a quadruple bypass. Convenient. Well, and you know what? Like the the asshole in me was like, fuck, he was in custody, which means the taxpayer's money had to pay for it. You know? Oh, damn. Because like police legit will do that. Like if they're about to arrest somebody and they are hurt or whatever, like they'll wait till they get out of the hospital and then arrest them. Because if they arrest them while they're in the hospital... They have to pay for that medical bill. Dang. Because you're you're responsible for all of their care when they're in custody. There was so many legal maneuvers that are way beyond my comprehension of like postponing the trial and all this stuff. And two of the prosecution's witnesses had to do their testimony like on camera, like as like a deposition, because they were in such failing health and the trial was taking that long to start. During the trial, the prosecution talked about Lloyd being quiet, focused, cold. They compared his work at the paper company because he removed asbestos like as part of his job. They talk about him removing like toxic shit at work and then like eliminating a toxic relationship in his life. Ooh, damn. Right? Dennis, the guy that I talked about earlier, he testified as well. And he said that Kathy was trying to get away, but Lloyd just kept calling and sending cards saying he wants to meet over and over again. The prosecution also did a good job of basically eliminating the reasonable doubt with Dennis by saying like, look, of course he was acting normal. He didn't fucking kill her. Of course, you know. And he sought out the police. You know, he did all of this stuff. So they were kind of doing their part to eliminate that reasonable doubt. Again, they talked about the van and how it was like a relatively new van. And why do you have deer blood in it? And then why did you tell your wife it was oil and tar? And, you know, and then to replace all the way down to the pad. You know, it was just odd. One of the things that the defense did to create reasonable doubt was that At some point, Kathy had cut her finger at work, and she was treated on two different days at work because it didn't stop bleeding. And so the defense is like, well, that blood in his van could have been from her bleeding finger because, let's just say, I can't remember the dates, but I think it was like the 6th and the 7th were working days that year. But the paperwork from their company, the month of the date was cut off so all they knew was it was the sixth and the seventh of some month 
And again, there were like four months in that year before she disappeared that the sixth and the seventh fell on weekdays. So like on any, so their argument was on any of those occasions, her blood could have fallen from that wound. But I'm like, but in the back of the van, like, did the, were they having sex in the back of the van then? Because why would it be back there? Well, guess who also testified? Lloyd's wife. Good for her. Well, shall I say ex-wife by the time the trial started? She basically broke her silence. She said that an attorney had recommended that she, you know, give not really talk to anybody, you know, answer the cops questions, but like don't offer anything extra, blah, blah, blah. But she testified and she said she doesn't really remember that day that Kathy went missing very much, but she does know that it was their wedding anniversary which is very poignant, I feel like. But Lloyd brought home pizza for the kids, and then they went out to dinner to celebrate their anniversary. She said that he was acting a little weird, and she said that that afternoon at about 1245, he actually came home to change clothes. He had told her his clothes got messed up at work, but she didn't really think anything of it because sometimes he did get very dirty at work. But she never saw the clothes that he changed out of. And their whole marriage, he was very particular about his clothes. Like, he did his own laundry, you know. So, she didn't think anything of it. Like, okay, well, I don't know where those clothes... Okay, whatever. You know, because she doesn't do his laundry anyway. So, I felt like that was like a... Kind of like a, whoa. You know, he came home, changed clothes. Just all of that. Just her... Don't quote me on this, but I think that the police knew that part before the trial. But just hearing it from his ex-wife, like, no, he came home. He was acting weird. I think it just highlighted his behavior and his guilt. Well, in 2018, Lloyd Groves was found guilty and sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, which is the maximum sentence that was allowed because he was charged with third-degree murder. And since the murder happened in 1991, they had to follow the 1991 guidelines. So he will actually be eligible for parole in like four years. But his attorneys were really fighting that because they were like, a 10 to 20-year sentence for him is a death sentence because he's in his 70s. He's had, you know all this hardship, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, uh, well, fuck you. You should have thought about that before you killed somebody. Yeah. He does get time served, but that's like two or three years, two years, I think. So he's still in prison. And while the family got to see him convicted, they still don't know where Kathy's body is. Golly. What an asshat. Like, to not say anything about what happened to her? Oh, he still maintains his innocence. Like, at the sentencing, he was basically said, like, I understand y'all's loss, and I empathize with it, but I didn't do this kind of thing. Fuck you. And, again, you know, and that's the thing, too. His whole case was pretty much, pretty much circumstantial. I mean, yeah, they had DNA, but you can't, it's circumstantial because you don't know when that blood was put there, i.e. his defense attorney is trying to say the cut she had on her hand at work is what got the blood there but 
one of their circumstantial pieces of evidence was that in a conversation before Kathy's disappearance slash murder, he had told someone that he knows how to get rid of a body and it never be found. It was seven years after her disappearance that they had her legally declared dead, which I think is standard. I think like most places they had to be missing for seven years. But I just think like her poor kids, they, I mean, aside from, you know, hello, their mom's missing. They have no idea where she is. But like that was a two income family. That social security money that they would have gotten for their mom dying would have really helped things out. Yeah. I think the most damning thing against him is going home and changing his clothes Mm -hmm. at lunch. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, she wasn't seen after lunch. Right. And you were seen in your van following her out. And then you cut up the carpet in your van where you had said there was blood from a deer, but then changed that. Mm -hmm. So... You wouldn't change that if it was really from something like a deer or an oil can spilled or something like that. I mean, what is this? Fucking Shawshank Redemption? Are you tarring a uh, roof? (laughs) Oh, God. So, and you know, the story has quasi-closure because he was convicted, but I just can't believe they never found her body. Oh, I know what I was going to say. The rumor around town was that he killed her and then got rid of her body in, like, a vat of acid, which kind of makes sense with the job he does. Like, I wonder if he would have had access to that kind of stuff. And there was, like, a lot of land around them. The police searched all that land. I mean, they did their due diligence. You know, it's it's not from fucking lack of trying. And at this point, if he did use something like acid, there ain't shit left. Right. Wow. Well, I'm glad he got convicted. And I literally have no sympathy for him, for them. You know what I mean? Like, because again, this is so my personality. The only reason why I would even give a little bit for him to be released is like, you know, how they'll do like the compassionate release is because I don't want. Pennsylvania to have to pay for his medical bills when he dies. Right. Apparently, I'm all about the Benjamins. We know this. (laughs) Okay. Hopefully, your story has some sort of a better ending. Mm. Oh, God. So, when I was trying to figure out what to cover this week, I wanted to do something different because I've been doing haunted places and families for a bit. I was like, okay, I'm starting from scratch with ideas, so let's just go to the Coast to Coast AM website, because we all know that it's a great show, and they really do discuss interesting topics and, like, a whole variety. It did not disappoint. Honestly, I got a few ideas from just a quick search on there, and I'm like, yep, save that, save that, save that. But in particular, I came across this one post about remote viewing, and it premiered on August 31st, 2019. Like, pay-per-view for people's lives? <laughs> um, no. Oh. I kind of had an idea of what remote viewing was, but went to old Wikipedia and then went down a rabbit hole. So I'm going to take y'all on that informational journey because I thought it was really interesting 
and it leads to declassified government documents. Oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What in the Operation Paperclip is going on here? Right. So, first things first, remote viewing. It's defined on Wikipedia as being the practice of seeking impressions about a distant or unseen target, purportedly using extrasensory perception, ESP, or sensing with the mind. Back in the day, it was called traveling clairvoyance. And for a current reference, think about Eleven in Stranger Things, when she does a sensory deprivation to find people. Mm -hmm. That's remote viewing. Gotcha. So how does this really work? Where does all this information come from? So think about where you are right now listening to the podcast. Look around and there's nothing around you but air. In your car, home, cubicle, it's air around you. However, we know it's not nothing or empty because it's actually jumbled with all the electromagnetic information from cell phone signals, radio waves, TV signals, etc. And all of this quote-unquote invisible data is reaching you from whatever distance away. And to get a little more technical than what I really understand, it's communicating with you through a type of vibration that fills space and time. To pick up a certain signal you want, you need a receiver like a satellite dish, a radio channel, whatevs. So your mind is acting like a receiver for this vibrational information. And what remote viewing does is it teaches you to quiet your own mental noise so you can receive that signal without interference. And that is Donna's science corner over there. Okay. When I was a kid, uh, when I would go to sleep, I would just see if I could not think. And I would go, don't think, don't think, don't think. Wait, am I thinking myself? Don't think. Can you stop thinking? Like, that's what, like, eight-year-old Carrie thought about when I was going to sleep. I mean, and also 35-year-old Carrie. I mean, you're not wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And then I fall asleep. Yeah. All right. So what I'm about to tell y'all is going to sound absurd, but it's true. We know that there's always been an arms race going on with America and the Soviet Union, all the things. But what you might not know is that there's also been a psychic arms race as well. And the beginning of that arms race could be pinpointed to 1945 when the Nazis were defeated and the members of an elite U.S. scientific initiative called Operation Alsos, they went on a mission to Berlin to collect as much intel as possible on German military projects. Well, what they found was a stored supply of documents and artifacts that were a part of the Annen Erbe, which was Heinrich Himmler's elite Nazi science organization. And what it translates to is ancestral heritage, because again, we all know that they were all about the master race and mm-hmm. all the shit. And honestly, I need to do more research on the whole group that he had. The hard word to say, Anin Araba. Yeah. Maybe if it's enough for a full episode or Patreon, because like I went down a YouTube rabbit hole and I was like, wait, 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 wait. 
I'm off. I'm off. Yeah. Let me go back to the next thing. You know, and I was like, save for later because it's just so interesting. But basically, Heimlich maneuver. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was obsessed with the occult. And so he ordered SS officers to raid everywhere for artifacts that related to magic. That meant for them to, you know, loot museums in Poland, Ukraine, anywhere that he, you know, like, I want it, I got it. And the artifacts that he was looking for were things like the Holy Grail. Yeah. And something called the Lance of Destiny. Have you ever heard about that? Mm, but it sounds like Sir Lancelot. Anything <laughs> to do with him? Mm, well, what it has to do with is it is supposed to be the spear that is the spear that killed Christ. Girl, I was like, hmm? Huh? It's also noted, though, in this basement with all of these artifacts and items, there's also a baby skull that was in the corner in a pit of ashes. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, we all know Himmler is not a good guy. Mm-hmm. But, like, whew, this is his own personal collection. Right. You know? So, that was the beginning. But then, during the Cold War, tensions were fucking extreme. And tensions came to an all-time high on March 10th, 1970. There was a woman named Nina Kulagina who stopped a frog's heart with her mind. And she did this while she was under observation at a military institute in Russia. And this whole thing was recorded, and the video was leaked. Allegedly. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it was, you know, fake leaked or, or if it really was, like, leaked. Who knows? But I don't think it was a coincidence. Because, again, Russia was going to hit their chest and be like, look at what the fuck we can do. Uh-huh. Because, you know, a rivalry. Well, it made the U.S. perk up and be like, skirt. Wait, y'all can do that? We have to do it, and we have to do it better. Gather the witches. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. I knew Salem was a mistake. Yeah, I was going to say, and all the witches were like, do you remember what you did to us last uh-huh. time? Yep. Well, what they did do was create a secret government project, and it would become known as Project Stargate. And the project went through different code names depending on who was funding it, and it changed from the Army to the Defense Intelligence Agency to the CIA, so it bounced around. So the different names were Gondola Wish, Grill Flame, Center Lane, Sunstreak, and Scanate. But ultimately, all of that fell under Project Stargate. I want to know who in the fuck comes up with these code names. Well, if I could remember his name, I was listening to one episode. It wasn't the one I found for this. Mm-hmm. But he was talking to Art Bell on Coast to Coast AM. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, just like in general, like Operation Paperclip. Yeah. Operation, like, Blue Rhino. I don't know if that's a thing, but it's, like, random shit, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't name it, like, Operation Mind Control. I mean, you know, but, like, wait, what? So one of the now declassified documents has the project's mission statement on there, 
And basically, it is to focus on psychoenergetics, which is basically a mental process by an individual, you know, how they perceive and communicate with a designated person. Again, remote viewing, but it's a fancy term, psychoenergetics. So what they wanted them to become were psychic spies. And something that's known about this project is that every success that the project had, they called it an eight martini result because the results were so mind-boggling for people that they would have to go out, drink eight martinis to just be like, okay, now I can understand how, you know, like, okay, okay, cool, cool. I can go to sleep now. You know, like, sure. That's a fuck ton of martinis. I mean, also, they just wanted to drink eight martinis. Let's be honest. Eight martinis? I would be crawling on the floor. Same. I'm just like, can you just give me olive juice and olives, honestly? Put it in the glass and make it look nice. Well, research into remote viewing began at the Stanford Research Institute, which is the SRI, in 1972. And as part of this research, parapsychologists started interviewing different psychics around to test for their telepathic abilities. And one of these psychics were actually pretty famous, but he was famous in the UK at the time. He became famous over here, too. His name is Yuri Geller. If his name rings the bell, it's because his claim to fame was bending spoons with his mind. Okay, that sounds familiar, but not his name. Well, I like this kind of shit, and I've watched him on TV, so, you know. Which, actually, I believe later it came out that that actually was not real. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Yuri. He participated in a series of psychokinesis tests over eight days in August in a lab in California. And this is the same location that scientists were developing, like, cutting-edge technology, nuclear warheads, like, all this stuff. Because they were, like, the mind is going to be the best weapon ever, and it's also defenseless. True. Yeah. One example of the test is when researchers asked Yuri to duplicate drawings that were like produced by another person that he had no interaction with. So what they did, they would just like pick a word at random. That person would draw whatever came to their mind from that word. And Yuri was in an isolated room. And when the person was done, like the mediator out in the hall kind of thing would knock on the wall and let Yuri know, okay, let me start drawing. But he didn't get the word though, right? Right. Okay. Because it's going to be like, uh, well, we could probably draw the same thing yeah. if we had the word. No. But so the word was bunch, and the person chose to draw grapes. So at first, Yuri is just kind of like word vomiting. Because, I mean, they have people watching him and shit, you know. He's like, I see drops of water. And then he's like, no, they're purple circles. And then he's like, okay, wait, no, I kind of, mm-hmm, I got it. And he drew... A bunch of grapes, 24 to be exact. And that was the same number that the other person had drawn. Holy shit. Yeah. 
another test just like that was given. And what they did, they opened up the dictionary, again, separate from him, turned to a random page, selected a word, and they would pick something that could be reasonably drawn. Yeah. This time the word was fuse. And so they decided to draw a firecracker for it. Hmm. Well, once he received that tap to notify him that the person had finished, his immediate response was that he saw a cylinder with a noise coming out of it. And that is what they drew. It looks kind of like a candle almost, like a long cylinder and like the the fuse and then like sparks. Mm-hmm. So kind of like dynamite, but it was a firecracker. But what he drew was a drum. He ended up drawing a drum. It wasn't a firecracker, obviously, but he did make that correlation at the beginning. However, it's still like, it's not a cylinder, but it's round and fucking noise comes out of it. Like, I don't know. I was just like, I could see like firecracker and a drum. Like, I don't know. It, It makes sense in my mind, but who knows? So those were just some of them. I mean, others he would pass doing something like 12 times in a row, you know, and like, again, it was all double blind stuff. So there's no way he had any upper hand. However, the government was not convinced, but the research was ultimately convincing enough for the U.S. Department of Defense to be like, hmm, we're interested. Our ears are perked. So in 1978, with this interest in funding, there was now enough to create a secret U.S. Army unit based in Fort Meade, Maryland. The group was super small, and even at its peak, in its prime, it only grew to 22 members. The program was highly classified, with only about 100 people aware of its existence at all. How do you get recruits and stuff for stuff like that? ears to the ground you know and it was in the 70s so like this was that new new age way of thinking and stuff like that so people were like Yuri Geller he was being televised doing stuff yeah things like that and because it was small and secret and still considered pseudoscience they worked out of some old wooden barracks all their remote viewers were required to like sign an oath that basically was like, I swear that this is secret. You know, this is the most secret thing ever. I will not tell Duke. <laughs> no matter how many disguises he uses to That's get my right. recipe. That's right. And also, if they breach their contracts, it could result in a $10,000 fine and possible jail time. Mm-mm, I'd be keeping my mouth shut. Yeah. Well, to become a member of this project, you had to prove your skills and powers. And they did this by various tests, like they did with Yuri. And an important guy to know is Ingo Swan. He was ground level for creating the process of remote viewing at the SRI and the experiments that he developed that helped them gain attention from the CIA. Also, he became associated with this theory and idea that he came up with for controlled remote viewing. What he said is that someone who remote views, they could accurately describe a location if you gave them 
just a general coordinate. So when they got CIA funding, this is something that Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, who were the physicists and the major players of the SRI, they did it. They were like, okay, we're going to do it. And also, let's just be clear that the CIA was not just simply interested in investigating this phenomenon. They were interested in the possibility of its use for the Army intelligence world. So, like with Yuri, the others had to go through tests, like I mentioned. And one was almost like a game of show-and-tell mashed up with hide-and-seek. It focused on the goal of the remote viewer to identify objects that were out of view, which we can see how that would be vital because you would know like where the enemy kept their arsenal, like where their secret weapons are, like all the shit. Like mm-hmm. if you could see shit that an aerial shot couldn't. For this test, they chose a gold Native American necklace. How it was designed was a chain of golden spheres. They had smaller balls at the outside, bigger ones in the middle. Each of these gold balls had like intricate designs etched in them and their remote viewer was given clay so that they could recreate whatever the target object was. And another thing, they wanted those people to describe the history of the people who made it. Most got it wrong. The results really varied from partially wrong to laughably wrong. One person wrote down information about a Zuzu car manufacturer. What? Yeah. Now, y'all, I was obsessed with an Azuzu trooper. Yes, you were. Mm-hmm. It was from Laguna Beach. Another person said that it was a teacup. Another person said it was a bowl. But a few, however, did make small balls out of clay. And that is how the necklace looked. And then there was someone who made those small balls out of clay and described that they were gold and that they were handmade by several people who had to bang on metal. So, like, that's the etching part. He described someone with dark hair and skin, which could match Native Americans. It's still kind of vague, but still, like, I mean, it hit the mark. Mm -hmm. And remember Ingo Swan, who I mentioned, and I was like, he's kind of important? Yeah. Well, now we're going to talk about how they found him and some of the tests they put him through. Ingo was living in New York City, and he was an artist and a known psychic. The ability he was known for at the time was being able to accurately remote view weather in different cities around the U.S. And he had also been very vocal about powers of psychokinesis, which is, again, like to mentally affect objects at a distance. One of Ingo's friends had a connection with Putoff, and they were being Ingo's hype person and was like, Ingo, submit your findings to Putoff. Well, of course, Putoff was like, come on down. You're the next contestant. Mm-hmm. We got to see what you can do. Right. Everyone was eager to see what he could do. So they set up a test ASAP. What it consisted of was something so fucking scientific that I had to look shit up. But they wanted to see if he could affect a super sensitive electromagnetically shielded quark detector buried five feet underground in a cement floor. And 
If you're like me and have no fucking clue what a quark detector is, quarks are basically building blocks of matter. So the detector was to find subatomic particles. I mean, duh, you had to look that up. (laughs) Right? So, I mean, these are things that are not really seen with the human eye. But every time they ask him to think about the detector, the readings from the device would deviate from the baseline readings. And so they were like, no, okay, he's got it. He's got that je ne sais quoi. (laughs) So we doing it. So the program began to test and develop remote viewing began. Then they had Ingor view objects in a box. Again, he wouldn't see them place this object in a box, but he had to remote view into that box and see what was inside. One of these tests, he said, I see something small, brown, and irregular, sort of like a leaf, but I don't know, except that it's very much alive, like it's even moving. The target object was a small live moth, which does look kind of like a leaf. You know, the back, the colorings and Mm -hmm. stuff, like pretty much on point. And because he was so good at this, because, I mean, he they had, like, fucking 10 tests and he passed them all, mm-hmm. you know. And he just got bored with it. And so Ingor said to them, I can view anything in the universe. This is a trivialization of my abilities. Okay. I was like, okay, humble brag and weird flex, but okay. Meanwhile, I'm like, that's a really good Scrabble word. Right. If I played Scrabble. If I knew how to fucking spell it. Right. A few days later, he came up with a new way to do remote viewing. Like I said, he developed the controlled remote viewing. And this was viewing map coordinates. So the physicist, Targ and Putoff, they were like, okay. They went to a store, bought a big atlas, and they were like, all right. You know, just turn to a page. There we go. Give these coordinates and we're off, you know. And he really was good at it. But there was a critic at the CIA and he was like, you know what? He might have memorized the entire global map, which who has fucking time? A con artist. True. But Ingor was like, okay, just use random Like, just choose a random fucking number, and if it matches up a coordinate, like, give it to me. You know what I mean? It's not one from this book or one from anything. Like, I'm not cheating. Well, Ingor had an opportunity soon to do that weird flex again. Because in the 1970s, there had never been any satellites that had been sent to Jupiter. At this point, NASA had just launched a satellite to Jupiter named Pioneer 10. And so they were like, hmm, I wonder if he can tell us. And then when the satellite gets there, we can match it up and see if he's right. And there's no way he could memorize this because no one's seen it. Yeah. So Ingor and a second person named Harold Sherman, they were placed in sensory deprivation tanks and asked to remote view to another planet. Their descriptions of Jupiter were recorded independent of one another. 
but they both had almost identical descriptions. Oh, shit. Some people said they were so similar that they they had to rehearse beforehand. And there's no way of knowing if they were correct. So if they said, okay, this is what we're going to say, no one can debunk it. Right. Well, what they both described was multicolored streams of thick clouds that surrounded the planet, harsh storms, something called the Big Red Spot, and floating crystals. Well, in the year 2000, NASA launched launched a satellite named the Juno Satellite, and it was to take high-definition photos of Jupiter. And we now know that the surface of Jupiter looks exactly like what the two remote viewers described. Oh, um, what? Yeah. So even if they had rehearsed it, there is no way they knew what it really looked like unless they actually saw it. Were they still alive to, like, get that vindication, And I wonder? Yeah, some of them, yeah. Some not. Which is weird, because I'm about to segue into one. Look, we are so in sync that we could do this test. No, we couldn't. We can't do it on Cranium, where You're we right. have to do three things. You're right, but I was in sync with your segue right there. You didn't you, even know you, you needed it. Uh, uh, uh. I'm not in sync with you. I'm Backstreet Boys. <laughs> you like it from the back? <laughs> yeah, I do. In June of 1973, Ingo was given coordinates and placed in a Faraday cage, which is basically a cage or an enclosure that's used to block electromagnetic fields. Which I found out that your car is basically a Faraday cage. Just FYI. What? I know. So if you want to just like drop some adorkable knowledge, got it. Well, about these coordinates, he goes into detail about this location. Then a few days later, a man named Pat Price enters a picture. And Pat will go on to be considered one of the most naturally talented remote viewers of Project Stargate. He was a former police commissioner for Burbank, California. So the coordinates were given to him as well, and his description not only matches Ingo's, but is way more detailed. Both men sketched something that resembled some sort of military base. Pat goes on to say that the top desk had papers labeled Flytrap and Minerva, and that there is a filing cabinet on the north wall, and it was labeled Operation Pool. And the folders inside were labeled as cue ball, 14 ball, 4 ball, 8 ball, and rack up. And he said that the site name was something like Hayfork or Haystack. And then he gave three different names of personnel. So, of course, put off sends this information to a CIA agent named Richard Kennett, and so he shows his colleague, Bill O'Donnell, and Bill is the one who provided Kennett the coordinates, and Bill is laughing and shaking his head. He's like, they're not even close. I gave you the coordinates for my summer cabin in the woods. Like, it's not this. This is my my place. Yeah. So Richard Kennett was not happy, because one, that makes him look like a fool. He's excited about this because this physicist is like yeah they did it so you know he's like i put my neck out for you yeah and now like i'm a laughing stock so he was like you know what they are so close in detail 
Like, there has to be something there. And so Richard Kennett takes his wife and children, like, let's go drive the countryside. Like, let's have, you know, like, a day in the mountains. And so he goes by Bill O'Donnell's coordinates. And, yeah, it's his friend's cabin. He's like, what the fuck? You know? Mm-hmm. But he keeps driving a little bit. And there's this dirt road. And it has a no trespassing sign. And then some satellite antennas in the background. And he was like, hmm, this is fishy. Like this, because he works for the CIA. He know what up, you know. Mm-hmm. So Richard Kennett was like, hmm, beep, boop, 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 to a friend who he thought might know about like, hey, I think I know about the secret base. Do you? Right. That kind of thing. Well... Does he see what I see? <laughs> yeah. I guess that friend was like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Hang up. And then, boop, 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 boop. Alert, alert, alert. There's a bit of a breach. Like, fucking someone is on the property. Okay? Oh, my God. Yeah. And so, Richard Kennett is, like, in hot fucking water. Because they're like, how the fuck did you find this out? Who who do you work for? Like, you're a fucking yeah. spy. All this shit. Well, turns out where Pat Price and Ingo Swan were, it was a secret installation, a secret base in West Virginia. It's like a Navy communications base and really belongs to the NSA. So like, Mm. hmm. They had mentally broken into the Sugar Grove facility in West Virginia, and that code name was Haystack. So what it was, was a satellite interrogation station where NSA could eavesdrop on Soviet space vehicles, radio chatter, and all of those code names that he saw in the filing cabinet were correct. (gasps) Yeah. And so no one believes that they weren't there. It's like, no, no, no. He saw into the filing cabinet. Like he had to open that up and like now he knows shit. And he's like, no, no, no. Like, we've never been there. I rode by there just to try to check shit out. For years, that was a 100-mile no-radio zone because the NSA was doing top-secret shit there. Wow. Yeah, so everyone was pleasantly stunned, but, like, everyone involved had to be investigated by counterintelligence because that's how accurate it was. So it's just, like, mind-boggling. Yeah. Again, eight martini results. Well, Pat Price is probably best known for his work with the CIA about a secret nuclear testing site used by the Soviet Union during the Cold War. In July of 1974, Russell Targ and Pat Price were sitting in a Faraday cage. It was a copper-screened, electrically-shielded room. Russell gave him a slip of paper, and it had geographical coordinates on it. It came from a CIA agent named Ken Cress, and he was waiting for them in the vault in the basement of the building. And neither Pat nor Russell knew the target area or anything. And honestly, not even the CIA knew what was going on there at the time. They just knew, like, something's up. After taking a few moments to quiet his internal noise, Pat spoke, and he started to describe what he was seeing. He said, I am in the sunshine, and I'm laying on top of a three-story building, 
it's some kind of research and development complex. He was like, whew, this sun feels good. You know, I mean, it's that's how real it is. And then he said, there's some kind of giant crane that just rolled over my body. It's going back and forth. It's the biggest damn crane I've ever seen. He's like, it runs on a track. It's got wheels on both sides of the building. He was like, I have to draw this. Like, this is wild. And so he did. He drew an enormous eight-wheeled game tree crane. When they were finished, they went and met with Ken Crest, and he showed them a large satellite photo of the facility. And he was like, yeah, you're in the right place, but what are they doing under that crane? That's what we really want to know. So the next day, they do the exercise again, and Pat's like, whew, there's a lot of activity. They're just trying to make this giant steel sphere. It looks like it's going to be 60 feet in diameter. It's huge. He's like, they're making it out of gores and trying to wield them together, but the metal's like too thick. It's not going to work. So then he drew what those gores look like, which were basically orange slices. What he described in his remote viewing turned out to be a containment vessel for a particle beam weapon to shoot down U.S. satellites that were taking pictures. And this was all confirmed two years later by satellite photography and the sphere fabricating was described to a T how he was describing it in Aviation Week magazine in 1977. But he's the one who did not get that validation because he died before that happened. Hmm. So here's a little aside. Pat Price's death is related to all kinds of conspiracies. I'm going to tell you one, and I didn't go down this whole rabbit hole because I just, one, I'm kind of scared to search this shit. And I'll tell you, when I tell you, you're going to be like, oh, okay. Because searching CIA shit is scary anyway. Like, going to the CIA website, be like, oh, declassified documents. Like, I still feel very weird about that. Yeah, totally get that. So this theory is that he was a double agent for Stargate and for the Church of Scientology. (gasps) Oh, shit. Yeah. And actually, a lot of the scientists belong to Scientology, But there were rumors that he leaked information that he found out during his work for CIA to the church. (gasps) Yeah. And so, like, um, no. Yeah, you can't do that. Yeah. And at this point, I think Scientology and the government were, like, frenemies. Okay. Where Scientology wanted the smartest, the best. They wanted, you know... I mean, I think they still do, like, money-wise and everything yes. else. But, like, L. Ron Hubbard was all into this kind of shit anyway. Mm-hmm. You know? And so these people are being paid by the government. And so he's like, wait, 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 wait. You work for the CIA? You can do what? This has been successful? Oh, you're going to rise up the ranks, you know, and... Come in here, come in here, you know, be my friend. Like, hmm. So there's that. Well, on July 14th, 1975 is when he died. And it's just kind of sketchy because just a few days prior, he had a number of covert meetings with 
agents of the NSA and from the Office of Naval Intelligence. And these were to be like, hey, are you willing to do some more remote viewing operations for us? And he was. So he went on to his next mission. The afternoon of July 13th, he flew into Las Vegas and he checked into the Stardust Hotel. All was going good. Until? It wasn't. So when he was going to check in, a man brushed up beside him. Oh, God. Poison. Like, yeah. Could have been an accident. Could have been like, and I, oop, you know, whatevs. But he said, hmm, actually, I kind of felt a shooting pain in my leg, but hmm, okay. But that really might be what happened. He might have been stuck with a needle. Because that's what he said, like a shooting pain. Yeah. That's what he meant. Well, right away he started feeling bad. He was like, I'm going to go lay down, take a nap. Well, around 5 a.m. that next morning, he woke up and he was not breathing right, had cramps and like just cold sweats. Like, you know, I mean, he was not good. He called his friend. The friend was like, say no more. I'm on my way. Friend got there, but soon Pat started to convulse and then went into cardiac arrest. And the paramedics got there quickly, but they couldn't keep him alive. Like, they got his heart started again, but they just couldn't keep it. He would, like, convulse again and... Flatline. Yeah. And so he died. Now, there is a fact that he did have heart disease. So it could have been a natural thing, like... Hey, this just happened, but it's like, hmm, this guy who's really good and knows a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. And if he was playing both sides, it could have been Scientology or the government, allegedly, who put a hit on him. Because if Scientology is like, oh, he's not... He's not going to work with us anymore. He's doing his own thing. Like, you know, mm-hmm. fuck no. Because then he knows too much about Scientology, too. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's just like, shit. And government, too. And it's just like, holy shit. So wait, so how do we know that he felt a sharp pain on his leg? He told his friend that. Okay, gotcha. Because working in the CIA, but in a top secret project that only 100 people know about, he was super paranoid. And so he had some files on him. And so when he started to feel bad, when he went and laid down, he called that friend and was like, hey, I have some papers. I need you to pick up. Damn. Like, I can't be trusted. You know, like, all the things. So that's when he told him, like, there was a sharp pain. Gotcha. I don't fucking know. But, like, I'm going to lay down. You know, it'll be good. It'll be good. Because, again, hell, he's lasted. And he, you know what I mean? Like, he's like... I mean, what do you even go to the hospital and say? I think somebody poisoned me from behind when they actually bumped into me, but I'm not sure. Right. And, like, where do you work? I can't tell you. What's the nature of your job? Can't tell you. What You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff. Oh, God. So, all of that's a little iffy. And now we're going to move on to another person. Joe McMonagle, he he is known as remote viewer number one. And he worked directly with the U.S. Army and the... DIA, which is the Defense Intelligent Agency. And Joe said that from an early age, his memory was 
on point. That is one thing he had, and it was a good thing and a bad thing because he grew up in a really turbulent family. He was surrounded by violence, by poverty, alcoholism. And he said when he was a child, he had visions at night when he would get really scared. And so then he would know like, okay, if I'm scared, I can see a vision. And so he learned to hone in on that and protect himself and like comfort himself. When he was old enough, he enlisted in the military to get away from his own personal war zone. When he joined the project, it was called Grill Flame. And he was another person they found to have amazing abilities to describe and to sketch distant locations. He worked in the old wooden barracks at Fort Meade, and he sat at a desk with a typewriter and a mug of coffee. And the mug, <laughs> it said this way up and had an arrow pointing the wrong way. Oh, my God. I was like, that is my kind of humor. I like you, Joe. In September of 1981, Joe carried out a series of sessions on the request of the National Security Council to try to identify some activity within a large industrial-type building in Russia. So he did, and what he reported is that there was a very large, like 500 feet long, new submarine. It had 18 to 20 missile launch tubes, and it had a large flat area at the aft end, so it was something different. And people just did not believe him. And they were like, this is not it. Like, this isn't it. That's, and he said it would be like launched in 100 days, which would put it like, they're not going to launch a submarine in freezing water. Like, they're not going to do it. This is a new type of assault ship. That's what you're looking at. Like, this doesn't sound like a submarine, all the things. Well, it was. It was a Typhoon class submarine, and we were the first ones to discover it half a year before it became operational wow. because of him. Wow. Yeah. Like, you know, you just have to, like, oh, you know what comes to my mind? Two things. And they're actually pretty different, I feel like. Toby Keith, How Do You Like Me Now? That song. To be like, how do you fucking like me now, motherfucker? Because mm -hmm. I was right. And then also Billy Madison with that guy who has, like, his hit list yep. and shit. Like, that, like, because I'm petty as fuck. That's what I would do. Like, oh, you don't believe in my abilities? I'm going to make a list. And every time I'm fucking right, I'm calling y'all <sighs> and being like, do you remember on blah, 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 that I said it was this? Check the New York Times because it is, you know? Okay, this one is going to lose Carrie. Like, really lose Carrie, but... I had to put it in here. On May 22nd, 1984, Joe was told to focus his mind on the information in the envelope. Obviously, he couldn't open it or anything, but it was coordinates and, you know, just re report what you see. So he is like, what the fuck? Where am I? He's like, all right, well, there's some tall, like they're really tall. Then people, strange clothes. He's like, huh, okay, weird. And he's like, hmm, 
they have like pyramids. There's pyramids. And he's like, wait, these people, they're dying. It's past their time or age or something. Like it's, it's weird. Well, when they opened up the envelope, there was a three by five note card and it read the planet Mars time of interest, approximately 1 million years BC. What? Yeah. So this would be the first time someone went backwards. In a Washington Post interview, Joe said one of his favorite remote viewing missions was in 1980 when the CIA captured a suspected KGB agent in South Africa. And they were like, we need to know how they are communicating with the Soviet military. So they put an envelope on Joe's desk and he's like, okay, let me, let me see. And without knowing anything about anything, he was like, you, I know exactly what it is. I can see it perfectly. He uses a small pocket calculator and they're like, how can he use a calculator to do anything? Well, it wasn't a calculator. It was disguised as a calculator, but it was a shortwave radio. When Joe retired, he was awarded a Legion of Merit Award, and in part for his five years of remote viewing missions for the military and other agencies. Another guy, Ed Dames, he was interviewed on Coast to Coast AM, and he was one of the first five Army students trained by Ingo, the one who had the weird flex. And Ed, he said that they could direct the Coast Guard to a particular ship that had like concealed drugs or anything in its bulkhead, which they couldn't see normally. And he's like, and that was just a minor part of our job. But like, we, you know, like, we're on drugs. Yeah, we got it. But he said, our primary task during the 80s was to locate hostages in the Middle East. He said within a couple of hours, they could describe the state of being or if they were dead and like exactly where they were being kept, how things looked, their captors, their condition, but they couldn't really locate them. Like they could say they're underground in blah, 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 or like they're in a house that has the sun on all sides and blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And it would take several sessions to get that exact location. And so it could take four or five days for that exact position. And sometimes their captors had already moved them. Okay, so I'm going to talk about another person. In 1979, a man named David Morehouse, he joined the U.S. Army. Well... In 87, he was shot by a stray bullet in his helmet. During a training exercise, it was just a freak accident. It knocked him unconscious. Well, while he was out, he had a dream about an angel. And from then, his entire life changed. He started having weird dreams, and he started to feel like he could see through the eyes of the people around him. He went to an army psychologist about this because he was like, I think I have a mental illness or a brain tumor. Something happened. Yeah. Because I'm not, quote unquote, normal. Yeah. I'm not how I was. Himself. Yeah. 
Well, instead of being like, oh no, something is wrong, the psychologist was like, I need to introduce you to a secret project called Project Stargate. So, yeah, he went and joined because he was like, oh, there's other people like me? Like, oh, okay, like, this might be my calling. The CIA needed David Morehouse on many occasions, but I'm going to focus on two specific cases. The first was to capture a Marine named William Higgins in Lebanon. So David and a few others of the group were able to actually describe the location where he was being held and explain the scene. Unfortunately, they didn't get to rescue him in time and he was killed. The next was the Pan Am Flight 103, which disappeared above the ocean. And David was able to give the plane's location. He said it blew up because there was a terrorist bomb that was hidden in a suitcase. Well, the team did find the plane where he said it would be. And when they investigated, they realized that all of that was correct. After retiring from the military, he did go on and he has a private business where he teaches remote viewing to other people. He wrote a book. He does speaking engagements about the power of the human mind. And, oh yeah, the movie The Men Who Stare at Goats, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, all of them, it was inspired by his book and life story. Damn. It's a satirical take on it, you know, because, like, The Men Who Stare at Goats, because people really did think that they were going to be able to kill things with their minds. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like, we want you to stare and be able to kill that goat. I want you to be able to sit here, drink coffee out of your mug, and, oh yeah, assassinate this world politician. In 1976, there was another win for the remote viewers. A small, tight-budgeted operation was run out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. And the secretary, Rosemary Smith, believed she had psychic powers as well. Well, a Soviet bomber had gone down in the jungles of Africa, and the CIA had used every means available, and they had nothing. So they were like, you know what? Who are you going to call? So they called upon Project Stargate, and Rosemary was able to draw maps that pinpointed where this aircraft was within a few miles. That information was sent to the CIA. They sent a paramilitary team out to that jungle, And they saw a villager carrying a piece of the aircraft out of the jungle. So they followed and was led to the site. But even with all of those successes, ultimately, the Stargate project proved to be successful enough and was finally dissolved in 1998. And that was after they spent $20 million in fundings. And when the project was disbanded, there were only three remote viewers still working. However, Joe McMonagle, he said, um, yeah, $20 million is a lot of money for the 20-year project. However, we saved the government about $240 million by helping find lost Scud missiles in the Persian Gulf War. And that's just one of the things we did. So our help was way more beneficial 
than the 20 million they dropped on us. That is so much fucking money. It is. Well, and like I mentioned, the Stargate files were made available online in the CIA record search tool database, and it included a total of 930,000 declassified files, and it contained more than 12 million pages. Something I found interesting, and this is just another little, like, aside thing. There was an article titled U.S. Army Explores Supernatural Science on Medium.com. And L. Sydney Fisher writes that in her research, she found that a common denominator among psychic people was the appearance of blue eyes. And when she looked at some pictures of the remote viewers in the Stargate project, she was like, hmm, the top four people have blue eyes. Ed Dames, blue eyes. Joe McMonagle, blue eyes. Ingo Swan, blue eyes. And Lynn Buchanan, blue eyes. And speaking of Lynn Buchanan, he was interviewed on Coast to Coast AM where he discussed how controlled remote viewing has moved into the civilian world. And he said that what they're doing is called ARV, which is Associative Remote Viewing, which allows one to predict the future outcome of an event. And it's like a binary thing. You either win or you lose. So team A wins, team B loses. That kind of thing. So like a football game or a poker game or other things like that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The stock market. If something goes up or down, you know, all the things. According to Buchanan, 90% of civilians who have learned ARV are using it to beat the games of chance in casinos. Wow. Yeah. Like, can I understand it better then? Because your girl needs help. Well, I, I feel like I've seen that on movies. Like, Yeah. And on um, Ozark. So that's really it. There's so much more. Like I said, there's over 12 million pages. But I just kind of like condensed it as much yeah. as possible. But I just thought it was so interesting. Like I went down because I was just going to talk about remote viewing and like some of the protocols and whatever. But then I was like, wait, our government paid people to try to like make their mind a weapon, which duh, we know. Like we've seen it all in movies, but like now, no, um, these were declassified. Mm-hmm. And they spent $20 million on it, and for 20 years. So here's my thing. They say they closed it down, and they say that it wasn't successful, but I just told you some pretty successful things. Right. And, again, it lasted 20 years. I feel like if it wasn't successful, it wouldn't have lasted that long. I feel like they closed Stargate, put out what they wanted to put out, and opened up another project that's even more secretive. Maybe. Because I think they are closer to making the mind more of a weapon. I don't know. All I know is the saying, when there's smoke, there's fire. Yes. So, again, just like the MK Ultra when you did, it's like you get these snippets of these declassified documents, and it's like, 
yeah, that tells us a lot, but that is like a drop in the bucket of all the documents we cannot see. Mm-hmm. Or if we do, they're so redacted, you can read like the, at, by, you yeah. know? Yeah. I love fucking conspiracy, man. Me too. Well, I just think it's interesting because as much as people say like supernatural stuff doesn't exist and, you know, try to squash everything, it's like, mm, well, I mean, the government funded a fucking project for 20 fucking years mm-hmm. about it. And so I'm, I don't know. I'm just like, mm, do y'all have aliens? Like, have y'all? Like, what all do y'all have? Right. Because y'all believe. And who all actually knows the shit? Yeah. Here's my thing, too. It's like, I wish I was privy to just a little bit of this information. But I would end up like fucking Pat Price. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I'll, definitely you. If you bumped into something, you wouldn't think anything of it. Right. Well, with both of our stories, though, like layers of deception or like intrigue is always going to lead to murder. Yep, exactly. Well, I liked your story a lot. I know it was different than you normally do, but I really did like it. Yay. I hope y'all did. Y'all tell us what y'all think about, uh, especially Donna's story, because that had all kind of shit going on in it. There's too much to unpack. Yes. And I come with a lot of baggage. So, (laughs) thank y'all so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, all the things. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.